today, what I'm going to do is go back to the beginning of Matthew and just review real quick what we have looked at so far, okay? So let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Lord, we give you thanks for your many blessings that you have given to us. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that you have provided to us through him. And Lord, we're thankful for your word and the truth of it. We're thankful that we can have copies of the Bible in our hands. We don't have to try to sneak around with it. We don't have to try to hide it. We can openly study your word. We know your word is effective. We know that it's profitable and it's profitable to us. And so, Father, as we look at your word here this evening, we ask for understanding. And uh, we ask for wisdom and knowing how uh, this comes over to our world today. And so, Father, we commit this time to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. That's where it all begins in the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, this is talking about John the Baptist. Okay, or John the Baptizer, however you want to uh, put that and verse one says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, so this is the message that he preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we talked about when John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is really an Old Testament idea. And so his message is the same message that you find in the Old Testament prophets related to the kingdom. Okay, here's the condition for the kingdom to be established. The Jews have to repent. And when John says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, look, the kingdom is close by. You know, the opportunity for the kingdom to be established is close at hand. And so he's exhorting them, meet the condition necessary for the kingdom to be established. And really what John is saying, when you understand the whole context, he's saying... Okay, I'm going to introduce to you the king. I'm announcing that the king is going to be here. Because you've got to have the king to have the kingdom, right? Now, if you're going to have the kingdom, you've got to have the king. So John, when he says this, he's really saying, I'm announcing to you that the king is coming. And we understand that from verse 3. If you look at verse 3, it says, For this is he... That's John the Baptist, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's announcing the coming of the king, the Messiah. 
So that's the first time we see the word kingdom here. The second time is in chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. Now, you're supposed to already have all these places where the word kingdom appears. You're supposed to have that marked in your Bible. Right? So what I did, what's the royal color? Purple, right? So what I did is I took a a purple colored pencil. Because colored pencils don't bleed through paper. Colored pencil, and I simply highlight the word kingdom every, every time it appears in the Bible. So, in my Bible, purple is designated for stuff about the kingdom. So, in chapter 4, verse 8, this is talking about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And it says... Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, this is obviously not talking about God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the restored kingdom of Israel. Those are all one thing. It's not talking about that. This is just talking about the kingdoms of the world. So Satan showed Christ all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all this could be yours. And uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a place where it occurs, but it's not related to studying uh, the kingdom of God as we are. Then, still in chapter 4, but verse 17, verse 17, uh, Jesus has begun his earthly ministry after his temptation. And it says in verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, so this is his message. This is the message he's proclaiming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. Exactly the same. One key difference, though, and that is who is saying it. Okay, so with John the Baptist and his proclamation of this message, it included... The announcement of the coming king, that the king was coming. Of course, Jesus is the king. And so when he says the exact same words, the emphasis is on the fact that if Israel will repent, he will establish the kingdom. Okay, so that's the third place we find it in the Gospel of Matthew. Then as we get to chapter 5, so chapter 5, 6, and 7 are just commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in chapter 5 in particular, the first part of chapter 5 is the Beatitudes. And so you have these Beatitudes, these statements that are listed in chapter 5, verse 3 through 10. And what we find there is that the word kingdom appears in verse 3 and in verse 10. In the first statement of the Beatitudes and the last statement of the Beatitudes. And so they're bookends. It's at the beginning, it's at the opening, and at the closing, at the end. And um, that indicates to us everything that comes in between, guess what it's going to be related to? The kingdom. Okay, the kingdom of heaven. 
And uh, so here is the what fourth and fifth places that we find uh, the word kingdom, and it's referring to the kingdom of heaven. Just let me remind you, there is no difference between the phrase the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They're, they're the same, they're like they, they have the same meaning, okay? They have the same meaning. And they mean the restored kingdom to Israel. That's what's in view here. The kingdom that was predicted in the Old Testament is the restored kingdom of Israel. They're simply calling it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Maybe a way to think about it would be the kingdom that God establishes or the kingdom that comes from God. Okay, so that's chapter 5, verses 3 and 10. Then a little bit later in chapter 5, Verses 19 and 20 is our next two occurrences. And uh, here the focus is on the Bible, on the law in particular. And uh, these two verses say, this is Jesus speaking, whoever therefore breaks, really breaks isn't the best translation there, whoever weakens or you know, deals kind of loose and fast with one of the least of these commandments and teaches men. So teaches men that this is true shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them. So whoever keeps these commandments the way they're written, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing we notice here in verse 19 is that the person who keeps the law and the person who weakens the law, they both are in the kingdom of heaven according to this. Okay, He's not distinguishing about who gets in in verse 19. But then you get to verse 20. And he says, in order for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? Now, the Pharisees' righteousness was based upon them keeping the law and the traditions. Okay? And they kept the law based upon the teaching of the tradition. So a lot of the traditions that they held to were used for them to get out of keeping the law. You know, they, they, they didn't want to keep the law. And so they come up with a tradition that allows them to finagle their way out of keeping uh, the law. And so Jesus says, look, you've got to be more righteous than these guys. And, and the nation of Israel as a whole held the Pharisees to very high standard. They were. They looked at them as being righteous men. And Jesus says, look, that's nothing. Your righteousness has to exceed that. Okay, that kind of goes along with what we've learned in Romans. Yet these righteous requirements of God, and they can't be achieved by um, just doing good things. They can't be achieved by keeping the law. It has to be a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you think about this, 
in connection to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells him what? You can't see the kingdom, and you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Okay? Unless you're born from above. There has to be a change, a radical change, a spiritual change in a person. And then you get down a little bit later in chapter 3, and you find out the condition for receiving that change is faith, believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's not saying you've got you to follow the law better than the Pharisees. He's saying you have to be righteous in a way that the Pharisees aren't. And the only way that happens is when you meet the spiritual condition that God has placed on the nation of Israel. And so now that brings us to chapter 6. So chapter 6, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, And so we have the Lord's Prayer. Really the prayer the Lord taught His disciples to pray. Okay, in verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come. So this is the request. Let your kingdom come. Speaking to God the Father. Now, that there tells us right away, when they pray that, Jesus has told them to pray that, the kingdom had not yet come, right? I mean, to ask for the kingdom means that the kingdom has not yet come. Why would you ask for it if you already had it, right? The kingdom had not yet come. So, those people who say that when Jesus Christ came, the first advent, That he came and established the kingdom. That's wrong. Those people who say that the kingdom started when Jesus was baptized. They're wrong. Those people who say that the kingdom started when Jesus began his earthly ministry. They're wrong. Because here, after all those things, Jesus is telling his disciples... You need to pray to the Father and ask Him to send His kingdom, that His kingdom would come. Uh, We also see that the end of the prayer uh, has the kingdom. Okay, so isn't that interesting? Not the first line, but close to the beginning of the prayer, it mentions the kingdom. And at the end of the prayer, it mentions the kingdom. Do you think that the context in which the disciples were to pray related to the kingdom seems so, seems to be so. And then we come to the end of chapter 6 and verse 33. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So Jesus is still talking to his disciples. He's talking to Jews. He's still offering the kingdom. You know, he's still telling the nation of Israel, if you meet the spiritual condition, I will establish the kingdom. And he tells the disciples, this is how you should live. You should live 
with the priority of seeking the kingdom. Now, it should be your desire that the kingdom would come. So part of what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is anticipating the coming of the kingdom. And he's telling them this is how you should live in anticipation for the kingdom. Now, this is all happening while Jesus is offering the kingdom. He's offering the kingdom. That all changes when the offer of the kingdom is withdrawn. And I don't know if we'll get to it today, but in chapter 12, the offer of the kingdom is off the table. It comes off the table. Okay, After chapter 12 of Matthew, the kingdom's not offered anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus starts speaking in parables to confuse people about the kingdom. So, this is, this is while Jesus is offering the kingdom. He's, he's telling the disciples, he's telling his followers how they should behave, how they should live in anticipation of the kingdom. Once the nation of Israel has rejected that, well, these, these things here aren't necessarily in anticipation of the kingdom. So today, I mean, like 2023 in the church age are we anticipating the kingdom or are we anticipating something else something else you know so uh, the blessed hope waiting for the blessed hope and that's talking about the rapture of the church so we're not anticipating the kingdom now should we live And according to the principles laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, well, yeah, that's a good idea to live that way. But we don't live that way in anticipation of the kingdom. We live that way in anticipation of the groom, the head of the church, returning to rapture his church, and and we'll be with him. Okay, chapter 7 then, which is still Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So again, this is, this is Jesus laying out um, the condition, the requirement for entering to the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, just because you call me Lord, just because you say that, doesn't mean you're in. Doesn't mean you're in. You have to do the will of the Father. And so, you know, that, that's a pretty important thing to understand. If, getting into the king, if the requirement to get into the kingdom is to do the will of the Father, that's a pretty important thing that you'd want to know. Um, but, but Jesus is, is essentially saying not everybody is getting in. Remember, he's, still talk, he's just talking to Jews here. He's saying not all you Jews are going to be getting into the kingdom. So he's limiting it, that in a sense. Uh, by the way, the will of the Father is to listen and obey the Son. So when the Son says repent... That's the will of the fathers for you to repent. When the 
the Son says, believe, that's the will of the Father for you to believe. So that brings us up to chapter 8. Now, chapter 8, we're outside of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? We've come out of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's two verses in chapter 8 that have the kingdom in it. And that's verses 11 and 12. So, you know, right there together. So we're going to deal with them together. It's the same context. Not necessarily an easy context, but it's the same context. Um, Let me pick up in verse 5. Let me pick up in verse 5 so we get a little bit of what's happening in the background here. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard that, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, For I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So verses 11 and 12 are the uh, focus here. But as we get into those, let me ask you something. This centurion that's mentioned here, Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Now, just because he's a centurion doesn't mean he's a Gentile, right? But the context tells us. There were Jews in the Roman army. Okay. But the context clearly tells us here, this guy is a Gentile, because Jesus says, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So he's contrasting the centurion and the Jews. He's contrasting the faith of the Gentile with the unbelief of the Jews. Okay, so... Now, when you look at verses 11 and 12, there's, I think, a couple of questions come to mind, a few questions come to mind. Number one, who are the sons of the kingdom? What is outer darkness? And why are people thrown there? Why are they cast into outer darkness? Well, who do you think the sons of the kingdom are? Jews. Now, what in the text indicates to us? That the sons of the kingdom are the Jews. Right. It talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jews are descendants or sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So the sons of the kingdom are the Jews. They are the they are the inheritors, the rightful inheritors of the kingdom. So these are one, the ones related to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I found it very interesting that all three of the patriarchs are named here. And I find that interesting because <clears throat> when we get into the epistles and we start studying the kingdom in the epistles, there are people who will argue that the church is Israel because the church is of the seed of Abraham. Okay? Well, here it says that the Jews, these Jews, the sons of the kingdom, the ones to whom the kingdom belongs, aren't just related to Abraham. They're related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we'll learn in the epistles that when it talks about the seed or seeds of Abraham, it's, it's related to faith. It's related to his faith. Uh, not biological descendants or not according to the promise that Abraham would have a son by his wife, Sarah. So, uh, these are the sons. The sons of the kingdom are the Jews. Now, what about outer darkness? Outer darkness. I mean, we can just, on the face of it, it doesn't sound good, does it? I mean, you have outer, so you're outside of something instead of inside of something. That's not good. It's darkness, and as you can tell here, oftentimes there's a contrast in the Bible between light and darkness. Light being good, darkness being bad. So we got that going on. But we also have a description of what takes place in outer darkness. See, at the end of verse 12, what does it say takes place in outer darkness? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's agony, right? People are in agony uh, there. They're, they are in anguish. When they are in outer darkness. So outer darkness here is the opposite of being in the kingdom. So outer darkness is just this is this is you're out of the kingdom. Okay. And um, one of the things we learned both from the Old Testament and, and we'll learn a little bit later on in the New Testament is that. As the kingdom is established and people are, who are alive. If you don't enter the kingdom, you're judged. You're judged. Most of the people at that point in time who are not believers, therefore they can't enter the kingdom, they will be executed. Okay? Because they've they're got war and things happening there. They're going to fight with Christ and they're going to be killed. Okay? They're going to be killed in battle. They're going to be killed in rebellion, whatever it might be. And that's where they go. They go to hell waiting for the judgment at the great white throne judgment. That's outer darkness. So outer darkness here is another name for hell, Hades, uh, that type of thing. And it's going to be a kind of holding place until the great white throne judgment that comes after the end of the thousand year period related to the kingdom. Now, the sons of the kingdom... 
here are cast out. So this tells us that there are Jews who are cast into outer darkness. There are Jews who should inherit the kingdom that will not be allowed to enter the kingdom. Why do you think, according to this passage, why do you think they're not allowed to enter the kingdom? What's going on with the centurion? Faith. They don't believe. Faith is the issue here. And so even though they're related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they should be inheriting the kingdom, they're not going to be allowed in the kingdom because of their lack of faith. The centurion shows them up. When it comes to faith. So uh, that's that's what's going on here. So there's a couple things we just really need to note about this this passage as we conclude our comments here. Number one, there's going to be Gentiles in the kingdom. Right. So it says in verse 11, and I say to you that many will come. From east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Many will come from east and west. Now, what would provoke Jesus to say that? The faith of the centurion. Centurion's a Gentile. There's going to be Gentiles in the kingdom. Now, that does not mean that the Gentiles have the same status as the Jews in the kingdom. Okay? It just means they're going to be there. They're, they're going to get in. And I would even say this, this passage here is an indication that Gentiles get into the kingdom the same way the Jews get into the kingdom. They've got to meet the spiritual condition, the spiritual requirement that God has set, which is faith. So that's the second thing we learn here is that entrance to the kingdom is based upon faith. It's not automatic. It's not, you don't get in just because you're a Jew, right? You get in... Because you believe. Um, and a third thing that we learn here is that uh, Jews will also be judged. Unbelieving Jews will be judged here and so not get into the kingdom. And the, the place where they go for judgment is going to be a place of anguish. And I think that probably has a dual idea to it that they will not only be in physical anguish, but they're also going to be in mental and emotional anguish. So can you imagine you're a Jew and you're thinking, I'm getting into the kingdom. And then you're excluded. And you know you're excluded. I mean, when people go to hell, it's not like they just stop remembering and stop thinking. They know why they go to hell. They know why they're in outer darkness. And so to think, especially, especially this generation of Jews, to think they had John the Baptist announcing, repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand, then they have the Lord Jesus Christ himself 
saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jesus sends out his disciples to tell them, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus goes throughout all the towns and cities and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So this generation knew that message. And there'll be many of them who don't enter the kingdom. So uh, that's Matthew 8, verses 11 um, and and 12. So uh, if you ever want to do an interesting study, study the phrase cast into outer darkness or cast out into outer darkness. It's an interesting uh, study there. It's all related to the kingdom. Okay, Every time that phrase is used, Matthew's the only one who uses it. It's always related to the kingdom. It might not explicitly say kingdom there, but it's always connected to the kingdom. So now let's shift gears and go to chapter 9. Chapter 9. In chapter 9, we find the kingdom mentioned in verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus has been doing some miracles. And in verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So the message that Jesus preaches here about the kingdom is called the gospel. The good news. That's, so this is one of the reasons, as we read our Bible and we come across the word gospel, that we shouldn't just think of it in one way. Just because you read the gospel doesn't mean it's always talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, you know, the gospel of salvation. <clears throat> it could be the good news about something else. And here the good news is about the kingdom. So the offer of the kingdom is good news. It's good news. By the way... The next time that the kingdom is preached, okay, after the Jews rejected here, the next time the kingdom is preached, it's going to be in the tribulation. And that will be good news. That will be good news. So this is the message of Jesus. It's called the gospel. And this message is not alone. What accompanies the message. What does Jesus do? Healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So he is uh, doing miracles, miracles of healing. Now, I've already talked a little bit about the relationship between uh, the message about the kingdom, the announcement of the kingdom, and healing, um, how. Um, as part of the kingdom, there's this healing theme where everybody is going to be uh, made well. So we're not going to go back and uh, look at that. But I would just say that 
this is the, these healings are act, uh, are acting as authentication of the message of the gospel of the kingdom, not authenticating that the kingdom has come. Okay, so these healings, these miracles that Jesus is doing, says to everybody the announcement that the kingdom. Is that hand is true. It's not, an, it's not authenticating that the kingdom has actually come on the earth and that the kingdom has already been established. Okay? So here's some, here's some observations um, that point to Jesus still offering the kingdom to the Jews. Okay? Here in chapter 9, verse 5. Um, so. Th- this observation that Jesus is still offering the kingdom to, uh, to the Jews is important because Jesus has already dealt with some serious problems in opposition from the Jewish leaders. In other words, we like to think, you know, if I heard Jesus, there's no way I would say no, you know. If I heard Jesus speak, I would certainly believe, right? You know, the Jews would think, well, if I saw the Messiah, I would listen to him, right? Well, the Messiah was there, but they didn't listen to him. And so Jesus, as he has his earthly ministry, has been dealing with some very big problems with the Jews. And he has been dealing with the opposition of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. In chapter 5, Jesus addressed common misinterpretations and misapplications of the law. You know, in chapter 5, that's where murder and hate go together, adultery and lust, integrity, doing what you say, uh, justice, love and curse. You know, all these things go together. Jesus is correcting misunderstanding about the law. In chapter 6... Jesus dealt with irreligious religious activities. So that was giving, praying, and fasting. And he dealt with those and said, you all are getting this wrong. By the way, it's after that, after he says, the scribes and Pharisees get this all wrong. By the way, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. So he deals with that. In chapter 6. In chapter 7, he dealt with false prophets or false teachers. In chapter 8, he deals with the lack of faith. That's what we looked at with the centurion. Jesus is, he's elevating the centurion's faith, but he's also condemning the lack of faith of the Jews. And in chapter 9, he's accused of blasphemy. Okay, he's accused of, of blasphemy here. What is important to not overlook is the fact that while many people hear Jesus speak, just like they heard John the Baptist speak, there weren't many actual followers of Jesus. So even though you have these crowds of people, 5,000 people at a time, just because there's 5,000 people there doesn't mean that they are all followers or disciples of Jesus. Question. 
when the church is established, so this is right after Christ's death and His ascension, how many disciples are we told are in Jerusalem waiting? About 120. Now think about that. Only 120. Now, I don't think that 120 is, is every single individual disciple of Jesus. I'm sure there's some who weren't in Jerusalem at the time. Okay, but it represents how many of Jesus' disciples are in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem on a feast day. So now, Jerusalem is not 10,000 people. It's tens of thousands of people. And there's only 120 disciples. So after three years of ministry, after John the Baptist and Jesus have been telling the Jews, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there's only 120 people in Jerusalem following him. So... We shouldn't have this conception that in Jesus' ministry he had thousands and thousands of people who were following him. No. What happened with Jesus is the same thing that happened with John the Baptist. There were thousands of people who wanted to hear him talk, hear him speak. But that's totally different than wanting to follow him, wanting to be like him, wanting to obey him. So there's not that many There's no mass acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? There's no mass acceptance. So there's not a whole lot of people here in chapter 9 following Jesus, but Jesus is still giving the offer of the kingdom. Even though he's had all these problems with the Jews, he's had problems with the Jewish leaders, there's not many people following him. He's still saying the kingdom of heaven. So he's still offering the kingdom, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I think it's also interesting, as you think about Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, to consider who he was preaching to. So we know he's preaching to Jews, but, I mean, was he only preaching to uh, uh, one region, one area? No, by this time in Jesus' ministry, he's been to Galilee and Judea. And it says here specifically that he's going around to this, all the cities and villages. So it's, it's not like you've got to go to one spot to hear this. Jesus is going to the people. Furthermore, when we get to chapter 10, we see that he sends his disciples out. So you just don't have to hear Jesus. You can hear what his disciples say. Okay, so that's chapter 9, verse 35. Any questions about that? Okay, let's go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 7. Verse 7 is our key verse. But uh, let me pick up in verse 1 to give some context here. And when he had called his 12 disciples, right? So these are the 12 disciples. Jesus specifically picks them, chooses them. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. And I think he does this to give them the means to authenticate 
that the message they're speaking is true. Verse 2. Now the names of the twelve, you got the names there. Verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, Do not go. So, let me emphasize that. Do not go to the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of Samaritans. So there's two groups of people. Jesus singles out as do not go to those people. Who are they? Gentiles and Samaritans. Okay? Samaritans are, you know, they're people that got a little Jewish blood in them. But he says, don't go to them. Don't go to Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. Verse 6. So now he says, now he puts a positive spin on it. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So here's who you're to go to. You're to go to the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. This is not a message for the Gentiles. It's not a message for the Samaritans. This is a message for the Jews. Verse 7. And as you go, preach, proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the message that the disciples of Jesus, the twelve, are to tell only Jews. They are not to tell this to anybody else. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a message that is not for Jews or Gentiles. And it's not for uh, Samaritans. It is only for Jews. The Samaritans and Gentiles are excluded. Now, why would that be? Why would they be excluded? Because the message that's being preached here is a message about the restored kingdom to Israel. The message is about the kingdom being restored to Israel, not to Samaritans and not to Gentiles here. So this is important for us to note um, because this is taking place before Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah. So before. This is all happening prior to his rejection. Okay, is that clear? Does everybody understand that the message is not for Gentiles, it's not for Samaritans, it's only for Jews. It's only for the house of Israel. The, the, the message is, let me put it this way, if I can be really provocative. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think about the kingdom. Okay? It doesn't matter. The kingdom message is for the Jews. The, the Jews have to believe for the kingdom to come. It doesn't matter. All the Gentiles in the world can believe, right, that Jesus is the Messiah. That doesn't bring in the kingdom. The only thing that will bring in the kingdom is the Jews believing, the Jews uh, meeting the spiritual requirement. All the Gentiles and the Samaritans in the world could believe in Jesus Christ. He won't establish the kingdom because of that. He will only establish the kingdom when the Jews believe. Okay? 
Now, uh, chapter 11, let's go to chapter 11. And in verses 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, we'll probably have to end here because this is pretty extensive. So uh, let me pick it up in verse 1 so we got the context. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach, to preach, and their cities. So tells tells the disciples, go preach, and then he does it. Right? Verse 2. And when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison, so John's in prison, when he hears about the works of Christ, works of the Messiah, he sent two of his disciples. Right? So that tells us. There were people still following John. People were still disciples of John. Sent two of his disciples and said to him, said to Jesus, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for someone else? Do we look for another? Are you really it? Now, we can try to figure out why in the world would John the Baptist have asked that question, but the Bible doesn't say so. It's all speculation at that point. Um, I kind of think he didn't want to die. <laughs> That's what I kind of think. He didn't want to die, and he's, he's trying to tell Jesus, hey, get on with it. <laughs> you need to establish the kingdom here, or I'm dead. All right? Um, just like we would rather be raptured. Okay? If you've got a choice between rapture and resurrection, go with rapture. Right? Um, I think that's that's kind of John's perspective. So, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, to these disciples of John the Baptist, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. And lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What gospel would that be? Gospel of the kingdom. Okay, that's the only gospel we've learned about so far. Gospel of the kingdom. And and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. So he's dealt with these disciples of John the Baptist. And it's as they're going, he turns to another group of people. And he starts to tell them about John. And he says this in verse 7. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? So obviously all these people knew who John the Baptist was, right? This is not somebody who was, uh, you know, a low-level person in Israel. People knew who John the Baptist was. Who did you go out in the wilderness? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Some wimp? Some guy who doesn't have any conviction. But what did you go out to see? Verse 8 there. A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? The generation he's preaching to, this generation of Jews. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. So, so what's going on here? So, first you have John the Baptist. He's in prison. He sends his two disciples. And he's, you know, are, we, are you the guy or is there somebody else? Okay. Which is a weird question to ask the guy if you didn't think he was the guy. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, John knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. And that's why I think he's just kind of saying, get on with it. Get on with it. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to talk about John. But when he talks about John, he wants everybody to know that here and now is nothing compared to what the kingdom will be like. And so when he says, uh, if I can paraphrase this, John the Baptist is the greatest man who's ever been born. But he's nothing compared to the least in the kingdom. So there's a comparison that's happening there. And so, you know, Jesus is saying, he's comp- he's com- Jesus isn't really comparing John and somebody else. He's comparing the here and now with what the kingdom will be like. And he's like, there's no comparison. Even the greatest man ever born will not compare to the smallest person in the kingdom. Okay, the least in the kingdom. But then in verse 12, he says a very difficult statement. And from the days of John the Baptist, and I take that as from John the Baptist when he began his ministry. Until now, until this very point that Jesus is speaking, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. So, uh, this is probably one of the more difficult phrases. Kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. One of the more difficult phrases we have to deal with. But we see from the context, okay, the context makes a few things clear. It separates 
the time before John the Baptist from the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. So let's look at verse 12 again. It says, and from the days of John the Baptist. So that's when talking about when he began his ministry until now. Okay, until now. Now we're talking and we're in Jesus' ministry, right? So here's one segment of time. John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. Then in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, it says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So that's the second period that we're dealing with. The the time before John where you had the prophets and you had the law that were prophesied. And then you got John. Well, Well, what's Jesus saying here? He said you had the prophesied and you have fulfillment. With John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, you have the fulfillment of of, uh, some of these prophecies. And Jesus is saying in verse 14, if if you will believe, believe's the issue. This is going to happen. If you believe, the kingdom's going to happen. He says, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. So he bases, he bases... This future fulfillment of things connected to the kingdom, he bases it on whether they will believe or not. If you're willing, if you're willing to receive. Now, that word receive is not strange to us when it comes to believing. So in John's gospel, chapter one, receiving and believing are synonymous. To receive Christ is to believe in Jesus Christ. I think Jesus is doing the same thing here. If you're willing to receive, if you're willing to believe it, John's Elijah. I don't think he's saying just if you're willing to believe that John is Elijah. I think Jesus is saying if you're willing to believe what the prophets and the law prophesied is being fulfilled in front of you, then the kingdom Will come, and then he says in verse fifteen, "Hey, pay, he who has ears to hear, let him hear." Okay, let him hear. Let him pay attention. Let him believe. But then he starts talking about the generation he's talking to, right? And this is all derogatory. They're not believing. They're not believing. Okay. Now let's get back to verse twelve. And uh, I'm going to read an extended quotation out of a book because I just think it explains it better because it's pretty complicated. Right? And then I'm just going to say a few words to sum up. <clears throat> and that's all we got time for. The first great problem which confronts a student of Matthew is the meaning of the verb to suffer violence. Uh, you see that there. Suffers violence. How do we understand that verb? The verb form can be in middle voice or passive voice. Don't worry about that. Those who believe it's the middle argue from its use in Luke 16, 16, which is the only other time this verb is used. Suffer violence. Luke 16, 16 is the only other time it's used in the New Testament. So those who believe it is in the middle voice argue from its use in Luke 16, 16, 
and also lay claim to the context for support. It then refers to the energy, if this is true, it refers to the energy expended by the disciples to enter the kingdom. So here's, let me summarize. If this is in what's called the middle voice, then it's talking about the disciples expending effort, even violent effort, to enter the kingdom. And uh, this particular author says it's better to understand this as a passive. passive uh, a passive verb simply means the action is done to the subject. Okay, the action is being done to the subject. So he, he mentions some reasons why. He says, first, the verb has no object. There's no direct object to this verb. And uh, he quotes from somebody else, and this is the quote that he uses. It says, um, taken as a deponent, that's the middle, it would be utterly without sense because this verb without an object or something equivalent thereto uh, can... Uh, it just can't be used. It's not in an independent or self-contained conception such as to exercise force or to forcibly step forward. So he's saying that you can't take it this way because it doesn't make any sense. Another indication is seen in the use of the verb to take by force, which is the idea of snatch away. That's the verb harpazo, where we get our word rapture from, to snatch away violently. Okay, the passive may yield several meanings. It may mean that men are snatching the kingdom from God's hand and thus forcing its coming. However, this view doesn't fit the context. Verse 14 and verse 20 through 26 affirm the unwillingness of Israel to receive the kingdom. So it can't be talked about people trying to take the kingdom from God and trying to force the kingdom, the political movement, on the world. Okay, because they don't want it. They're not receiving the kingdom. In addition, it is noted by Creamer that the passive is never used in a good sense. It's always used in a bad sense. So it's always used in a negative way. There are still two meanings which the passive could give when all of the above factors are considered. The verb could be interpreted as um, refrain, uh, referring to a political ambition, something about instigating a revolt, or it could be referring to the religious leaders of the day offering resistance to the movement begun by John and Jesus. So there's... I just read that to you because there's a lot of confusion around this. So the meaning of this phrase, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force, means that the message of the kingdom preached by John the Baptist and Jesus is being opposed by certain forceful and powerful men, scribes and the Pharisees, who are taking the message of the kingdom from the people. So when it says here, it suffers violence, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, 
It's, it's suffering opposition. It's being opposed by the violent, the violent men. And this is referring to evil men, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are taking it away by force. They're taking it away from the people. The key point that we should see here from this passage is neither John nor Jesus or Jesus' disciples are trying to force the kingdom to come. They're not trying to force the kingdom in. They're not going to establish the kingdom whether anybody likes it or not. This is totally this kind of thing. that This is what people think, that Jesus is trying to force the kingdom to come in. He's pushing it, trying to force it. He's going to make it happen whether anybody likes it or not. So that kind of thinking is totally contrary to the teaching of the coming of the kingdom in the Old Testament. It totally opposes the Old Testament. Uh, The kingdom of heaven here in these verses should be understood as the message or the teaching about the kingdom of heaven being offered and not the kingdom of heaven itself. If the kingdom of heaven itself were being forcefully advanced, then we would expect the Old Testament prophecies related to the coming of the kingdom to be fulfilled at this point. And they were not. They were not. So, if you take it that Jesus is trying to forcefully advance the kingdom, one of the things you would expect to happen is the Old Testament prophecies about the establishment of the kingdom to take place like the day of the Lord. (laughs) But that doesn't happen. It's not happening here. It is clear from the Jewish authorities' attitude and treatment of John and Jesus that they were resistant to the teaching of the kingdom. And as such, they were removing the teaching of the kingdom from the people. They were doing everything in their power to undermine what John and Jesus taught. So that's what that verse is saying. Interestingly enough, the uh, 1984 edition of the NIV reads this way. It reads verse 12 like this. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Meaning that the kingdom was established during the time of John the Baptist's ministry and has been advancing by force ever since. So this and this translation of these verses is so ridiculous it barely deserves a response. But I will say the NIV translation committee recognized how ridiculous it was and in 2011 when they updated the NIV they removed that phrase. And they retranslated it to how everybody else translated, translates it. The, most of the Bible scholars out there today take this to mean that the kingdom is being advanced. The kingdom is being rapidly advanced. They don't like to say forcefully or violently, even though that's what the word says. They don't like that. They, so they just say... There's a lot of effort going into advancing the kingdom. It's happening now. The problem is, 
with that view is they all assume that the kingdom has already been established. And you have read, we have gone through every bit of the scripture that they have to go through. And can we find anything that says that the kingdom of, uh, has been established, has been brought in? No. The only thing we have up to this point is the offer of the kingdom. That's it. That's it. So their assumption, their assumption that the kingdom has already been established clouds their judgment when it comes to the interpretation of every passage about the kingdom from this point on. It's going to cloud it. Okay? So uh, they are no smarter than you. They have the same sources that you have. Um, they, they might have some of it memorized a little bit better than you do, but they have the same thing. We have the same Bible that they do, and we can read it, and we can study it just as well as they can. And they just make some pretty outlandish and crazy statements, and you just wonder, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It comes from an assumption, something that hasn't been proven by scripture. Anyway, that's all the time we got. For, oh, I went 10 minutes over. Sorry about that. Thought I was going to end on time. So <clears throat> next time we get to chapter 12. So let me pre, pre, uh, preview. That's the word I'm looking for. Preview chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the chapter where we have the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And we have the withdrawal. Drawal withdrawal when you're from West Virginia that's not an easy word to say uh, <clears throat> you, you have the offer of the kingdom withdrawn so it's not going to be offered after chapter 12 anymore so um, the kingdom appears in three verses 12, 25, 26 and 28 next time we're going to spend a lot of effort on verse 28 because it's pretty complicated but the big thing you need to get and you don't have to be a brain surgeon to get it is that Jesus has been rejected as the king as the Messiah and now he is going to no longer offer the kingdom to the Jews okay so let me pray and uh, we'll be finished Lord we give you